Pastor, we need your help. Grandma's 98 and dying. We need your help. They've tried everything. They don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. We need your help. The man on the phone obviously had no other options. Grandma was 98, frail as a bird, not doing well, dying in the hospital. And apparently they needed to bring in the heavy hitter. So they called the preacher. They called the pastor. They needed apparently a professional prayer to come in. (laughs) Well, when the preacher arrived, he arrived at this hospital room that was just packed to the gills with people. At least a dozen, maybe more than that, people who were packed to the gills, just kind of squeezed in like sardines to the hotel room, uh, to the hospital room. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was so packed in there that you couldn't even see grandma. And, and, and when the preacher walked in, it had sort of this, this feel of like the, the employee break room smell and feel to it. You know what I mean? Kind of like that sticky amusement park feel you get after you've been to Dollywood for the whole day, you know? So he walks into this environment knowing nothing but 98-year-old grandmother's not doing well and is on her deathbed. And so he sort of innocently asks, <laughs> so what should I pray for? As soon as he gets it out of his mouth, one of the family members snaps back at him and says, what should you pray for? Pray she stays alive. He was sort of taken aback and shocked at the scolding. <laughs> so the preacher promptly did his duty as the professional prayer and, uh, and left the room. He was still sort of in a daze when he left, and he saw a nurse from his congregation, and he said, hey, help me out here. What's going on with that room? She instantly gave him that kind of look, that like knowing look of, you know why they're there, right? She said, they just want to keep Grandma alive so that they can keep collecting the check. The fog had cleared, and he understood the moment. There was this, this poor woman, 98 years old, frail as a bird and on her deathbed, and her own family wasn't really there to celebrate her life, to comfort her in her death, to communicate, Grandma, we love you, and we're by your side. Their prayer hadn't been about Grandma at all. I mean, think about it. Their prayer had basically been, Dear Lord, please help me steal from my grandma. This is the kind of praying that turns God into sort of this cosmic coin-operated vending machine, prayer request, get something back. I have this thing I need, and I'm getting it back. But you see, friends, this isn't just a problem for these folks in this hospital room. This is a problem for all of us. This is a problem for me. I know that I sometimes get so consumed with my circumstances in life that I lose perspective. And I start praying these sort of foxhole prayers. You know what I'm saying? God, if you will just, then I will. If you'll just take me out of this difficult circumstance that I'm in, then I promise you forever from now on, I will. If you will just... Give me relief from, if you will just get me past this fill-in-the-blank, this financial hurdle, this difficult transition, this, this physical problem I'm having, 
This relationship issue. If you could just, if you could just, in fact, help me get to the certain level in my work, then, you know, I would have this certain amount of income, then finally we would be okay. Like, finally, really, if you change the circumstance, we'll get there. <laughs> Friends, newsflash. A relationship with God isn't about getting the things you think you need. <laughs> a relationship with God is about a good and loving Heavenly Father who knows your truest and your deepest needs, helping you get there. I mean, if you really stop to think about the majority of the things about which we pray, the content of so much of our prayer life, you'll realize a lot of times we're just, we're just still praying for our check to keep coming in. I mean, let's be honest, the majority of our prayers, and I struggle with this too, are directed at experiencing the least amount of personal discomfort and the most amount of pleasure. And when we're praying like that, we're doing exactly what Jesus warned us against doing it. Doing. And let, let me say it another way. It's a good thing Jesus didn't pray to avoid hardship. Are we preaching yet? Like, like do you get what I'm implying? It is, in fact, exactly through hardship by which every one of us has salvation and knows salvation that covers our sin. Now, don't get me wrong. God made you. He loves you. He's a loving Father. He does not want you to suffer. There's nothing wrong with praying for relief from discomfort. Some people in this very congregation experience very real and difficult physical things from day to day. And, and prayer is one of their, their only lifelines. Their relationship with God is about the only thing they have that is consistently helping them and sustaining them through that. It's okay to seek relief from comfort. But let me just say this straight. <laughs> Somehow we don't give in to the truth that we live in a world that is filled with sin and brokenness and pain that, that, that honestly are not going away until the fullness of heaven arrives. Which means, follower of Jesus, you must learn to pray your way into a sustaining relationship with Jesus that makes you fruitful until heaven arrives. What other life or world are you seeking in your prayer if it's not that? What, what if God, what if God, instead of the, the, the comfort we so passionately seek, the amount of financial status, social status, relationship status, whatever it is that we're seeking, what if instead of so passionately needing those things, God really wants to break us so that the greater reward of having intimacy of relationship with God would be ours? Let me say it this way. What if God wants us to experience not having as much as we want so that we will know we already have everything we need. Because that's, that's the reality. <laughs> what if the question in all of our circumstances is, Lord, what, what do you want me to learn? How do you want me to change? How is it that I am meant in this situation to conform to where you already have me? <laughs> I mean, whose will am I really praying for when most of my prayer life is concerned with circumstances of personal safety and health and security? For example, for me, 
and the needs of those who don't have the presence of God in their life aren't even on my radar screen. What, what does that say about my heart, about my goals, about what I really value? What does it say about whose kingdom I seek in my prayer? You see, friends, prayer reveals whose kingdom we're really seeking. Prayer reveals whose kingdom we're really seeking. Thankfully, Jesus teaches us the difference between seeking after his kingdom and our kingdom in our prayer life. Turn to Matthew 6 if you're not there yet. He gives us some great instruction here on how to differentiate between the kind of prayer life that seeks after self versus the kind of prayer life that seeks after God. And friends, don't give in to the lie that seeking after self works. I mean, seeking after God's heart and His way and the context within which He wants to do His work in us, that's where joy is found. Jump in at verse 5, Matthew 6, verse 5. This is Jesus teaching here. And He says this, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes from acting in a drama. Actors would sometimes wear a mask to indicate that they were playing another character. So Jesus is saying here, don't be a fake prayer. Don't act when you pray. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Keep reading. He gives us an example of that here. Keep, keep reading in verse 5. For they, the hypocrites, love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now pause for a bit here. This may sound a little weird to us, this scenario that Jesus talks about. I mean, nowadays, if you see somebody praying aloud on a street corner, you might think, cuckoo. Uh, But in those days, that kind of scenario was fairly common. In fact, now at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you'll see uh, groups of people reciting Jewish prayers. That was pretty common then. So people would gather at the temple and recite these memorized prayers. And sometimes somebody would just start crying and wailing and, and, and making sort of a, a public spectacle of themselves. And it's, it's that that Jesus was talking about here. So Jesus comes along and, and, and talks about that kind of scenario and says, oh, oh, okay, I get it. I, I get it. Prayer here is about you. Right, right, right. Okay, this is about you here. I mean, he doesn't say it with that kind of smarmy attitude and sarcasm. He says it kind of straight up like he does there. He calls a spade a spade in verse 5. And he says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand. And pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. He's speaking here against positioning yourself in a way so, which you're, so that your personal spiritual awesomeness will be most fully on display by others. <laughs> Prayer is not an opportunity for spiritual posturing, friends. This isn't about you receiving adulation from others. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon, he was a great preacher in the late 1800s. Listen to how he describes this scene that Jesus sets in verse 5. Let me read this to you. He says, by our Lord's words, these hypocrites are unmasked and made to seem what they really are. Our king was wonderfully plain spoken and called both things and persons by their right names. Listen to this. This is good. These religionists, the hypocrites, These religionists were not seekers of God, but seekers after popularity. They were men who twisted even devotion into a means for self-aggrandizement. And if you do pray like that, Jesus says, on display for all to see, in sort of an ostentatious kind of of fashion, then then what you're going to receive is what you're receiving right then. That's, That's going to be it. 
Look again at the end of verse 5 there. It says, Truly I say to you, mark my words, he says, they have received their reward. The flattery that comes from others will be all the reward you'll get. But it also means not just the, the reward from others will be all that you get. It's also a statement about the response from God. Look at that again in verse 5 there. He says, truly they have received their reward. This is the statement also about God's response. You may get some adoring looks from some other folks around, but the real issue is that your prayers will fall on deaf ears when it comes to God, if that's how you're praying. Listen, friends, when you pervert prayer into an opportunity for self-adulation, that's all you'll get. That will be the entirety of the reward. (laughs) So what do we do? He offers us instruction. Keep reading. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. As opposed to those who do this in public to, to be on display for others, you go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now in most Palestinian houses of the day, there might be one room on the inside of the house one little room where storage for, for food and other things would happen that might have a door. Most of, the, most of the houses on the inside didn't really have doors. They might have a sheet from one room to the next. If, if anything, they'd have a door on the front of the house and one for this inner room. So he's referring to this inner room that might or might not be locked. Fancier houses might have more than one and might be locked. But he's saying here that this is the kind of privacy that is in keeping with the trajectory of real praying. This, this privacy is in keeping with the trajectory of real prayer. The, the person who's the real deal seeks out an environment where prayer is heard by God and not by men. Now, th- this isn't a command to, to literally only pray in a room with the door shut so that no one else could ever hear you. This isn't a command to go and build a prayer closet at home, though you certainly can if you want to. This is the rub here. And this is huge. This is huge. Hashtag Trump. This is huge and can hardly be overstated. Jesus is drawing a contrast and saying that our prayer life is either a way to seek self or to seek after God. That's the contrast he has set up here. I mean, it's easy to to talk about, oh, I don't don't pray out in, in public for people to see me, but do you seek after self in prayer? Because that's the real contrast he's drawing here. Prayer is either a way to seek after self or to seek after God. That's why he says this at the end of verse 6. Keep reading. If you do this in a way that seeks after God, your Father, verse 6, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now, this isn't a a formula for getting what we want or or getting the reward we want. Prayer is an opportunity to meet with, to talk with, to have communication with, and to hear from God, from God Himself. It's an opportunity to meet with, talk with, and to hear from God himself, which is to say the reward in prayer, the reward in prayer is the presence of God himself. The reward in prayer is the presence of God himself to sustain you. This is the heart. This is the heart of why we pray. So that we will have the presence of God in us when circumstances seem impossible. 
When you don't have an answer for the circumstances of your life, when you're not sure where you're headed, what you're supposed to do, what your purpose is, if you don't have those kinds of answers, the answer is always the same answer, the presence of God to sustain you. Because praying for praying for your circumstances is really not much different than that person in the square seeking after self. Prayer is a relationship of two-way communication with the God of the universe who made you and loves you and will take care of you. (laughs) So to put it all together where we are so far, when you pray in a way that seeks after God, the reward is the presence of God to sustain you. Jesus keeps teaching. Look at verse 7. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. He talked about the hypocrites before. Now he talks about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't go on babbling like those who don't know God. Apparently, that was sort of a way that they invoked the presence of God in theory was to just keep badgering him and just to keep you know, making those requests known. Uh, but, but he says here, that's not the way this works. This isn't a technical or mechanical formula. This isn't the great cosmic coin-operated prayer request uh, machine. They think, he says, they will be heard for their many words. He says, don't be like them, verse 8. Don't be like those whose words are empty requests. This is interesting, and this is huge. Verse 8 is huge before you move on to verses 9 and following. He says, don't be like them whose words are empty requests, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This emphasis on our true Father here is made throughout this whole passage and this whole chapter. It's the fifth time it happens in the chapter, the fourth time in our passage here. And he says, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so one of the natural questions is... <laughs> So if God knows what I need, then why do I even bother praying? Like, what's the point of praying? Why doesn't he just go ahead and, and, and give it to me or just go ahead and make it happen? Here's why. In a principle that underlies prayer and that Jesus is referring to here, God is a good and a loving God. He is a good and loving Father who knows our truest and our deepest needs. That's the difference. There's a huge difference between what we perceive to be our needs and what our true and good and loving Father knows are our deepest needs. A huge difference. This is important to to understand before we go into the next five verses here. Because if you go into the next five verses thinking this is just another formula for the great cosmic coin-operated prayer request machine, you're going to mess it up. If you don't get verse 8, you'll mess up the rest. Because you see, prayer is about conforming to God's goals. Prayer is about conforming to His goals, seeking after His kingdom. Let me say it this way. God has no interest in helping you achieve your earthly goals unless they are in keeping with His. In fact, there are places in Scripture that say, you go ahead and and, and work towards your earthly goals. You don't have my blessing for that. 
and you will forever, forever regret it. God has no interest in helping you achieve your earthly goals unless they are tools for his kingdom being made known. Because listen, you and I don't deserve the glory only God deserves. He alone deserves all glory and honor and praise. Mark my words and Scripture's words. He is going to get all glory and all honor and all praise because He alone is worthy of it. The question is whether we are conforming to that truth. That's the question. And if you get that, the rest of the passage falls into place. The rest of the passage falls into place. Which is why he starts his prayer like this, by saying this, verse 9, Pray then like this, with this understanding, pray this way. And it changes how we read this passage. Pray in a way that demonstrates you know who the real Father is and that He knows your truest and your deepest needs. Pray in a way that shows that you actually understand that God the Father knows your deepest needs. When you're praying like that, you're praying like Jesus. This is what he says here, verses 9 and following. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise and glory be to your name, most holy God. That's a huge prayer. To say out loud, God's the one who deserves the glory and the praise is a super powerful prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise and glory be to your name, most holy God. Your kingdom come. Establish your reign, Lord. Your will be done. Do as you wish, Lord. On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, establish your reign. And accomplish your desire in me. Your kingdom be established in my life, in my marriage, in my heart, in my parenting, in my work. In every area of my life, establish your kingdom, Lord. That's a powerful prayer. It's the opposite of the social posturing that Jesus earlier called into question. This is a humble posture of openness to God's goals and purposes in our lives. And when you're praying like that, verse 11 sounds like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Not, oh no, I don't know where anything's coming from, but I rest assured I know my needs are already met. I trust you, Lord, to provide what I need. And forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors. Help me to extend grace to others as you have to me. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Grant me more grace to stay focused on your kingdom instead of mine. Now think about this. This is the kind of prayer that sustained Jesus to live a perfect and a sinless life. This is the kind of prayer that sustained Jesus to endure suffering all the way to the cross. There's power 
in a prayer that says, I just open up my whole life to the Lordship of Jesus. So whose kingdom are your prayers seeking to establish? Does your prayer life communicate that you trust God to provide everything you need or does it communicate that you need everything before you'll trust God? When we're trusting God to provide what we need, we will pray Jesus-like prayers of courage and of boldness that put us smack dab in the middle of His mission to make Himself known in the world. We will be praying prayers that sound like, Lord, help me take up my cross. People who pray prayers like that are the kinds of people God uses to establish Himself in lives. To make Himself known to people. To further communicate His kingdom to people who are lost without Him. So let's pray that together now. Lord, we pray a simple prayer. Your kingdom come. We submit ourselves, Lord, to Your reign in us. We acknowledge, Lord, that were it not for You as Creator, providing a way of escape for us. Providing for us Your Son, Jesus. That You as Lord made a way of escape from our sin. We acknowledge, Lord, that were it not for Your work to initiate Your Son, Jesus, living a perfect and sinless life for us, and being sustained through your Spirit in Him, in that life, to go all the way to the cross by which He died for our sakes. We acknowledge, Lord, that were it not for that amazing work, we are nothing. Continue, Lord, to give us more of your Spirit that we would love the precious truth. That you're king of the universe. We want to pray like that. In ways that establish your kingdom in our hearts. Lord, forgive us for holding on to the circumstances of this world 
as if our safety and our security lie in grabbing onto those as tightly as possible. Lord, free our hands. We pray bold prayers that you would crush the lies in our worlds, in our lives, in our hearts, that we would continue to give ourselves to the temporary securities that don't last, but that we would further cling to the cross of Christ by which we know you. Lord, we just pray that you would continue to establish yourself in us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.